This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on Line Upon Line. I'm John Bradshaw with Eric Flickinger on Line Upon Line. We answer your Bible questions. We will go to the Bible and find out what the Word of God has to say about the questions that are burning in your mind. I'm glad you're with us today. We've got a question here from Trevor, and Trevor wants to know the answer to this question. Should we pray to the saints? Good question, Trevor. Okay, Trevor, I can give it to you one or two ways. The short way and the not-so-short way. Here's the, short, here's the short answer. No. The less short answer is this. Praying to saints. Now, I know something about this because I was raised in a church where we prayed to saints. St. Christopher was considered the patron saint of travelers. Uh, we always had a St. Christopher medal in our car, aging myself a little. It was a magnetized St. Christopher medal, and you could stick it to the dashboard. That's a few years ago. That's going back just a little bit. Um, St. Cecilia was the patron saint of this. St. Joseph was the patron saint of that, and so on. So why should you not pray to saints? Number one, you pray to God in the name of Jesus. That's the biblical model. You pray to God in the name of Jesus. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He said, when you pray, you say, our Father. He didn't say anything about when you pray, pray our St. Joseph, our St. Anthony, our St. Aloysius. We pray our Father. Praying to saints takes your focus off God. It, it, it tells you in your mind that God is not ultimately the one who, maybe, maybe God is only ultimately the one who provides what you need, but you've got these other intercessors, mediators, other folks that you can go to to have your prayers answered. That damages the wholeness of the divinity of God. It simply does. But then there's a, there's a whole other reason why you should not pray to saints, and that's this. The saints, Saint Joseph, Saint Mark, St. George, St. David, St. Mabel, whoever they might be, the saints can't hear your prayers because they're asleep. They're dead. When they died, all of them, St. Stephen, St. Martha, St. whoever it might be, they died and they did what every person does when they die. They died and went to sleep and they remained sleeping until the resurrection. This question comes up again and again, and I'm just so glad it does online upon line because people want to know what happens when you die. And praying to saints is bound up inextricably with that. So we need to look in, well, why don't we, why don't we go to another passage? One we haven't looked at in a while online upon line. We'll go to John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, had died. And what, what we find in the story is this, verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and so forth. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, and so forth. So they come to Jesus in verse 7. They said, Jesus says, let us go to Judea again. Now, Jesus said in verse 11, our friend Lazarus sleeps, 
but I go that I may wake him up. The disciples in verse 12 thought that if he was sleeping, it meant he was going to, be, he was going to get well. As, you know, someone's sick, if they rest, it's good for them. It's restorative. Verse 14, then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He was sleeping. He was dead. Now, when Jesus got to Bethany, he spoke to Martha and he said to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And she said this in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She understood what was going on in death. A person lives, dies, sleeps until the resurrection. That's how the Bible teaches it. And then in verse 25, Jesus says those very beautiful words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Later on in the story, they go to the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus calls him forth. Lazarus come forth and Lazarus came forth, still bound in grave clothes. He hadn't gone anywhere. He was in the grave. It's the same with Jesus who died on Good Friday, slept until Easter Sunday morning and came out of the tomb. Death is asleep. It was even that way for Jesus. So pretty simple now. If saints aren't in heaven, and they're not hearing your prayers when you pray, is there any point praying to them? Nobody there to hear them. Not at all. So you see, Trevor, the one word answer, no, was really adequate. But I know you need the explanation because you say, well, wait a minute, why can't they understand? Or why can't they answer prayers? Or why is there no point praying to them? The person to pray to is God. So we don't pray to saints because they're not in heaven to hear your prayers. And we don't pray to saints because that's deflecting attention away from God. God wants to hear you when you pray. Go to God. Going to a saint, going to Mary or some other person that you consider lived a very holy life and maybe they did, doesn't get you in the back door, doesn't get you closer to God, doesn't get you heard anymore. Just go straight to God and know that when you pray, God hears you. The saints do not. The saints will come up out of their graves on the resurrection morning, and we're looking forward to that day. Great stuff. By the way, get your questions to us. Two things I want to tell you. Get your questions to us at lineuponline at iiw.org, lineuponline at iiw.org. And if you would really like to dig deep in the Word of God, do our online Bible studies. Go to itiswritten.study. That's all you punch in. Type in. It is written dot study, and you'll find our It Is Written Bible Study Guides online. You go through those, and you will learn so much about the Word of God. Okay, what's our next question? We've got a question here from Layla, and Layla says, Doesn't John 3.16 give us two choices, perish or everlasting life? Doesn't this verse uh, help support the destruction of those whose names are not written in the book of life? Related question, isn't it, really? It is, very much so. Yeah, thanks, Layla. That's a good question. The Bible says in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, so flesh that out for us a bit. Well, it's interesting. That's probably the most quoted scripture in the entire Bible. There are few Christians who couldn't quote. If they can quote anything, they can quote John three sixteen. Right. And yet you've got 
probably the vast majority of Christians who are also under the assumption that when a wicked person goes to hell, they burn there throughout eternity. And yet that's completely contrary to, to this verse. Uh, here, Jesus says you've got two options. You either have perish or everlasting life. Not everlasting life in hell or everlasting life in heaven. It's one or the other. You perish or you have everlasting life. So let's come back to that point that you just made. The fact is that if you exist forever in hell, you have everlasting you life. You do. It's not a very pleasant one, but sure. it's still everlasting life. Right. But that, that's, that's not the option we're given. Right. Given in John three sixteen, you live, you have everlasting life, or you perish. Yep. The Bible says that he who has the Son has life, and he who doesn't have the Son does not have life. So if you don't have the Son, if you end up being lost, you don't have everlasting life, not, not even in hell. That's right. You know something, let's talk about this. The idea that God would burn a person forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Sure makes God look, uh, look like a pretty terrible tyrant. It's a repulsive idea. It is. It's a repulsive idea. Now you have, you'll have people say, leaders say, well, if that's what God wants to do, who am I to argue? Yeah. But it's not what God wants to do. Aren't you glad God does not desire to torture anybody for eternity? That, that one teaching, the eternal torment of the lost, has turned probably more people away from God, away from Christ, than anything else in the Bible. I mean, it's not even in the Bible, but any other teaching from Christianity. You think about this, this modern day in which we live. More and more people, rightly, are concerned about justice. Yes. More and more people. Um, this idea of a God who would burn someone forever and ever, thinking people don't buy it. They shouldn't. I suggest this to you. One of the reasons that the teaching has persisted so long in Christianity is if you back up a couple hundred years, people weren't thinking people, mm. if you know what I mean. In the majority church, you believed what you were told to believe, and that was that. The church was very, very authoritarian, and you believed what the authorities told you wasn't a whole lot of room to question. And without access to the Bible, how would you even find an answer to your question anyway? You just believe because they told you this is what you believe. And the medieval church abused this no end. They did. Bringing all kinds of crazy teachings and ideas into the church. But you know what? You let those teachings hang around for 15, 16, 17, 1800 years. They're really hard to get rid of because mm. people love the teachings more than the truth. That's right. So the Bible's very clear, and Layla, that's a good, uh, it's a good direction you've pointed us in. John 3.16 gives you two options, neither of which is burning in hell for eternity. Thanks for your question. All right, we have another question here, and this one is from Joe. And Joe wants to know the answer to the question. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 23, it says, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Doesn't this equate Paul's death with being with Christ? How does that fit together with the idea of the dead being asleep? All right, let's look at the verse. I know you just read it, but I just turned to it. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. So is Paul saying here that when you die, you go straight to the presence of Jesus, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. You'll notice it does not say 
that when you die, you're immediately in the presence of Jesus. And I'm not splitting hairs here. I'm not trying to get around something that otherwise is obvious. It simply doesn't say that because if it did, it would be really contradicting so many other parts of the Bible. In fact, many other things that Paul said. Sure. You know, he, he talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, what happens when a person dies and then when they resurrect again. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. A uh, long list of things where Paul makes it very plain that we are alive, then we die, and then we are resurrected. But that, that death, uh, that's going to take place until, or state of being dead is going to take place until Jesus comes back again. Yeah, that's so true. What did Paul say? We're caught between two things. Departing, that's one, and being with Christ. That's that. And he said, being with Christ is far better. The one thing he did not talk about is the timing. So I would tell you this, if you were to depart this moment, perish the thought, I do hope you don't. But if you were to depart this moment, uh, and we'll give you the benefit of the doubt, you'd be with Christ. But the question is, when? When would you be with Christ? Eric, we've got a few moments. Answer the question, when will the person be with Christ? 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 16, that the Lord's going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, right. and the dead in Christ will rise first. So when Jesus comes back, when he descends from heaven with a shout, when he blows the trumpet, that's when the dead in Christ are going to rise. That's when they receive immortality. Amen. Great question. Good answers. Thank you very much. We'll have more in a moment. This is Line Upon Line, and we want you to participate. Email your questions to us at lineuponline at iiw.org. We'll be right back. Planning for your financial future is a vital aspect of Christian stewardship. For this reason, It Is Written is pleased to offer free planned giving and estate services. For information on how we can help you, please call 800-992-2219. Call today or visit our website, hislegacy.com. Call 800-992-2219. Join me in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Together we'll go to the very spot where the event took place that started World War I. We'll visit the crumbling Sarajevo Winter Olympic facilities, see Sarajevo roses, go to one of the most picturesque bridges in all of Europe, and visit the site of the longest siege in modern history. All of it stained by tragedy. Don't miss The Greatest War as we investigate the greatest war of all, one that affects us both, the greatest war. Watch now on It Is Written TV. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written is a faith-based ministry, and it's your support that makes it possible for us to share God's good news with the entire world. Your tax-deductible gift can be sent to the address on your screen or through our website, itiswritten.com. Thank you for your continued prayerful support. Our toll-free number is 800-253-3000, 800-253-3000. Our web address is itiswritten.com. Thanks for joining us on Line Upon Line. I'm John Bradshaw. With me is Eric Flickinger. We're both from It Is Written. 
And there's something I want to tell you about before we go back and answer more Bible questions. We've got a great Bible study resource for you online. Go to itiswritten.study. That's where you'll find our entire lineup of Bible study guides, and you can study them online right from the comfort or in the comfort of your own device or computer. So go deep in the Word of God with us at It Is Written. Join us online at itiswritten.study. You'll be really blessed. And tell someone about these studies. They're terrific. They're powerful. They're Christ-centered. They are biblical. And they will answer questions that maybe you didn't even know you had. It is written dot study. Eric, part two of this program, what's our first question? Our first question is coming from Paul. And Paul wants to know the answer to the question, how do you explain the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Doesn't that tell us that when we die, we go immediately to heaven? Terrific question. It's such a terrific question. I'll let you answer it. Rich man and Lazarus. You find that story in Luke chapter 16. We do. And in Luke chapter 16, let's start by getting a little bit of context here. And I'm going to go just back to verse 14. You could, we could go back even further, and perhaps we will in a moment. But look at verse number 14. In verse 14, it says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. So the Pharisees are listening to what Jesus is saying, and they are deriding him. Then in verse 15, Jesus says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So Jesus says, what I'm about to tell you now is something that is highly esteemed among men, a teaching that men find fantastic, but in the sight of God, it is an abomination. Then he begins to tell the story of the rich man and Lazarus. All right. We'll kind of summarize the story here. Jesus says that there is a rich man and a man named Lazarus, who's a beggar. Both of them die. The rich man goes down into hell, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man, who's now down in hell, asks Father Abraham if he can send Lazarus down with a drop of water on his finger to cool his tongue. So let's kind of pick this apart a little bit. Is this a literal picture of what happens when a person dies? If it is, we've got some big challenges We here. sure do. Uh, not the least of which is what happens with Lazarus, because it says he goes to Abraham's bosom. Now, Abraham's bosom, that would be, if you will, his chest. Sure. So would that mean that Abraham is somewhere, possibly in heaven, and the righteous are going to live on his chest. I don't know that there are too many people who believe that when we die, the righteous are going to go live on the chest of an old man. No. I could be mistaken, but I don't think that that's the case. And so what you're leading us to here, if, I can, if I'm hearing you correctly, is this story is either a literal account of what happens when a person dies, that's right. or if it's not a literal account, this is a symbolic story teaching us other lessons. That's right. And Jesus had a habit of telling stories that would teach us lessons. So let's look at a couple of other aspects of this story and see if it is indeed literal or if it is symbolic. All right, let's watch this closely. Uh, you have the drop of water on the finger to cool the rich man's tongue. If I were in hell on fire, I would probably not ask Father Abraham to send Lazarus down with a drop of water on his finger to cool my tongue. If I was in hell on fire, I would want the Mississippi River in flood stage to come and put that fire out. Yeah. Not a drop of water on his finger. Then you have the issue of the conversation going on between, supposedly, heaven and hell. Again, I don't know too many people who believe that those in heaven 
and those in hell can communicate one with another. That would really take some of the joy out of being in heaven if that was the case. And think about this. You've got someone evidently in hell, and the word that the King James uses is in torments. Mm -hmm. And yet he's having a reasoned conversation with someone in heaven. That's right. My expectation is that the only thing the fellow in hell would be saying would be, ah! If he's being tormented, that's about all that he's going to be able to come up with. That's rather it. than, please send Lazarus with a drop of water on his finger to cool my tongue. Yeah. So every aspect of this indicates that it is symbolic, that it's not a literal picture of what happens. So why does Jesus bother to tell this story? Sure. As we look down at the very end of chapter 16, we begin to find out. In verse number 27, the rich man supposedly says, Then he says, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So what Jesus is saying is these religious leaders who are teaching this, he says, even if somebody came back from the dead and explained to them their error, they would not listen. Now, what were the religious leaders teaching? Well, they were teaching anything and everything they could against Jesus. They were not accepting him as the Messiah. And Jesus says, even if somebody comes back from the dead and explains that I'm the Messiah, they're not going to believe. Did it happen? Well, there was a man named Lazarus that, Je that Jesus brought back from the dead. Interesting that Jesus uses the same name here in this story. Did the religious leaders then believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Absolutely not. So Jesus told this story to paint a picture of what was happening and how it was very contrary to what the Bible actually teaches. And this next question is related to that question in a certain sense. Isaac asks us, does God destroy? A couple of ways that we would answer this. One, ask the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And two, ask Uzzah. And three, ask on and on and on we go with the list. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? The people were exceedingly wicked. And you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and what happens, it's in Genesis chapter 19, and what's really clear is that the Bible says God sends fire and brimstone down from heaven. Let me read to you uh, Genesis 19 verse 24. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he, that would be God, overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. God spared Lot and his immediate family, and he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not quite sure how you get around that. Ultimately, why would God want to keep the wicked in existence? To keep them tormented throughout eternity? That doesn't make sense. Would right. he bring the wicked to heaven and make them live there with nothing that they would enjoy? They, they would rather die than have to be forced to live in, in heaven throughout eternity with nothing that they enjoy. So this idea that God doesn't destroy, he does, it's an act of mercy. Yeah, the, 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 I think where it comes is people go, is that God saying, hey, I'm going to destroy that? Or is God somehow just removing his loving protection mm. and leaving people to their own consequences? You know, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Bible says in verse 7, this is Uzzah, who with his friend Ahio were walking with the ox cart on which the Ark of the Covenant was. It shouldn't have been on an ox cart. David messed up by doing that. That was not the right way to go. 
And we read in verse 7, 2 Samuel 6, 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. Now again, this isn't God who's an angry God, who's a mean, vindictive God. This is justice, and there are myriad reasons why God allowed that to be. You don't have to think that God's character is inconsistent with justice. It isn't. It simply isn't. So yes, Isaac, God does destroy. There is no question about it. And I'm perplexed as to why it's a question, but there you go. I think we have time for one more question, Eric. What's next? We've got a question from Donna. And Donna asks, how can we know that God actually exists? Hey, that's a pretty big question. Uh, that, in fact, that's a huge question and a very, very important question. I wonder where we begin with that. Well, the Bible says in Genesis 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we know that God is the creator and all life depends upon God. How else did we get here if we weren't created and we're not the result of intelligent design, a loving God calling us into existence? So we can know in the existence of God, so we can believe in the existence of God because God created us. He was here first, he made us, and we were here second. Where do we go next? What else would you say to Don? The question is the, the Bible. Can the Bible be trusted? Well, because if the Bible can be trusted, then we know that God exists because the Bible certainly tells us a lot about God. How can we know that the Bible can be trusted? You have archaeology. You have history. You have prophecy. You have the evidence of changed lives. You have uh, myriad authors who have come together and agree on every element of what the Bible teaches. I mean, you've got kings. You've got shepherds. You have uh, tax collectors, you have fishermen, they write on a variety of subjects and they all agree one with another. That doesn't just happen. No, it doesn't just happen. The Bible is clearly an inspired book. Therefore, you ought to be able to trust what the Bible says. Other reasons, other reasons. The testimony of changed lives, answered prayer. If you don't believe in answered prayer, then you believe in coincidence on a scale that a person can't even dream of the way God intervenes, the way God shows up in certain places. Obviously, obviously, a person can say, oh, you're just saying that. It was just good luck that you found a parking space in front of the supermarket. It wasn't an answer to your prayer. Okay, I understand you saying that, sure. Oh, that person got off drugs all by themselves. It was a doctor who helped them. I understand you saying that, sure. Oh, this was a coincidence. I get it, I get it. And I don't mind you saying that because ultimately we believe in the existence of God by faith, by faith. How can we, I can't prove to you that God exists, but I can find you all sorts of evidence that you'd then have to say, yeah, that's a strong indicator. And by faith, I believe in the existence of God. And the best way to know of God's existence is to experience the existence of God. Eric, one more question. It's a good one. Here it is. Who put the fish on Noah's ark? <laughs> Who put the fish on Noah's ark? Yeah, the question comes from Humphrey. Humphrey, it's a great question. In fact, I don't remember finding a scripture that says that the fish were on Noah's ark. You've got the land animals on there. Um, you've got a few birds that were on there. Uh, but fish, don't recall seeing that. And I think that's okay. Because I think the fish were pretty well equipped to survive outside Noah's Ark. In fact, God gave them a whole lot more water to swim in than they'd been accustomed to. Exactly right. No problem about the fish. And that sure is a good question. We appreciate your questions. Email your questions to us at lineuponline at iiw.org. And don't miss our online studies. They are at itiswritten.study. 
Thanks for joining us. See you next time. With Eric Flickinger, I'm John Bradshaw. God bless you.